0: okay thank you so much everyone for joining our panel today and for accepting our invitation to the future of religion now the subtitle i gave for our inaugural discussion was don't call it a comeback and that's an ll cool j reference for all you youngins out there and i'm making a presumption but i could definitely be wrong but uh is it coming uh, is it making a comeback or has it never left Uh, what is our relationship with religion and how has it presented itself within society and what could and should our relationship with religion be as we move forward? Now, uh, just like with our last uh, Future of Panel on Governance, uh, this one was touched off by, at least for me, the Capitol riot. Uh, because uh, besides the orange man, uh, the one person that the media would not stop talking about was the QAnon shaman, right? Uh, you know, he's not a lately mythic figure, but a blatantly mythic figure. So. And then uh, the reason that we structured our session like this with our facilitator for today, is the day after the riot, I recorded an episode with our lovely facilitator for today, Raven Connolly, where we talked a bit about the incident as well as about our personal lives. And one of the many interesting things I learned about Raven had to do something with church groups. So (laughs) Raven, if you would like to take it from here and tell us a little bit about yourself these church groups in your own personal relationship with religion, and then we could pass it on to the panelists and start our panel.
1: Thank you, Albert. Hi, everybody. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, So, yeah, my, my general trajectory to getting to where we are today, where this is like a subject that is important to me and something I'm actually diving a lot of my intellectual energy into is I mean I was raised secular so I come from a secular background uh, and therefore was really open to the kind of pluralism that we live that we all live in kind of in the secular world and especially over the last few years I mean I studied evolutionary biology in college Um, I was really into rationalism I was even in the rationality community and I began to I actually read uh, Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and he had a completely different way of viewing the uh, historical progression of humanity and a way of thinking about the world. And that made me reconsider religion as something that was holding a lot of humanity together. And recently, uh, with just the shifts that have been happening and the kind of mythic proportions of the events that have been uh, in our world, my Interest has gone more into the religious mindset and the power of religious stories. So I've been running a Bible group for the last six months uh, where we've been reading the Old and the New Testament, which is the church groups, by the way. I haven't actually gone to church. Um, But yeah, so over the course of this process, I have really begun to understand how much information there is about humanity in these like very dense passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament and how much it's underpins um, the society that we live in today uh, and yet nobody has any literacy in these things uh, especially secular people they struggle with having even an understanding of what the religious mind might be uh, beyond it just being a delusion so this is something I'm, I'm progressing into and now I'm beginning to uh, figure out how to set up another group where we'll be thinking about speculative religion. And that's kind of where we are here today with the future of religion. So what are the things that we're looking at now that we could see as potentially the ground for the major religions of the future? Uh, So the speculative part is that we don't actually know what's the longevity of these ideas. Some of them may end up being cults that people are really interested in for a short period of time that then dissipate again. But what are the what are the ideas, what are the religions that we may see in 100 and 150 years that are based on the ideas that are being explored today? So those are my interests at the moment and why I'm here uh, guiding this panel. And with that, I'll put it over to, I'll just pick who's next in my little trajectory so alexander do you want to introduce yourself and tell us why you're why you're here
2: yeah thanks for that um yeah i'm alexander beiner i'm the co-founder of rebel wisdom and i yeah i am feeling quite excited because i think um yeah as you were talking raven i thought like what is the future of religion in 150 years that just yeah it, it, it created a lot of uh, imagery in my head and kind of potentials and i mean this is a subject i've been really interested in for a while because i suppose i i come from the place of seeing us as as like inherently religious beings uh, or let's say inherently spiritual but to, you know uh, yeah i think inherently religious and the difference between those two is, is probably quite an interesting thing to discuss here um like personally i always remember this story of when, when I was in second grade, we, had, we were doing the Middle Ages. Um, and part of our task as a class, or like like the way the teacher was bringing it to life, was that we filled out these personality tests, which was like really simple, like questions, like what's your favorite food, et cetera. And then each of us in the class was assigned a role in medieval society. So like the really smart girl was the tax collector and the kind of big kid was the, uh, whatever, like the knight, And I was the monk. And like the whole, the way it was structured is that you could punish people, uh, in the class. Like you could make someone hold their hands under cold water for five minutes or something like that. Um, and so it was about, it was about understanding medieval hierarchy. And I always, I always find it funny that I was like the monk because that's, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've had, well, my life trajectory is, it's kind of taken me into being extremely curious and, and devoting a lot of time to, um, I suppose, spiritual pursuits. Um, I practice uh, Zen meditation, um, uh, also quite into um, the the essence work, uh, diamond essence approach of, of Almas, um, integral philosophy as well, and, and also psychedelic uh, philosophy so I'm very curious and feel um, I suppose a deep longing to a kind of sense of religious wholeness. And when I look out at the world right now, I see nascent religions uh, forming and uh, wokeism is one, the kind of conspirituality QAnon is one, but I think we're going to start seeing more and more and more of them. And I think I'm working on a, a piece right now, which is about the idea of the, the breach so the the idea of the imaginal realm, uh, the imaginal mythopoetic realm breaching into th- our kind of k- real world, for want of a better term, and I think we saw that in the capital. You know, I find it fascinating that we have these images of people like you know it was memed heavily of, of like you know when you drop eight tabs of acid and thinking you're a Burning Man, you wake up in the Capitol and you have these people sort of like perplexed, wandering around, being like, oh shit. For me, symbolically, a part of that, I understand, as breaching from this decentralized internet, imaginal religion into the real world of an institution and being in a building where there's guns and there's actual stuff happening. And like the reality of that, I see this perplexion on the faces of the people who were there. Um, And I think we're seeing that more and more. And what that means, I'm not quite sure, but it's certainly for me, I think what we're witnessing is the, the the rise of decentralized, chaotic religions happening online and then spilling out into real world. And because they're decentralized, I think that chaos is quite a dangerous thing and also something that's very pregnant with creative potential. And I think we're, in a sense, right at the beginning of that process. Um, so it's kind of it's a crazy time to be talking about the future of religion because we are we're in the primordial goo of emergent religion right now. I think of what we what we might see in the next hundred and fifty years. So uh, yes, I'm looking forward to talking about it, and I'm glad to be
3: here. Thank okay.
1: you. All right, Colin,
2: you
1: want to introduce
3: yourself. Hey, everybody. I'm Colin. Um, I'm here because I was invited, and I said yes. That's the only reason. Um, but I do, think a bit, I, I do think about religion, I, I, I pra- practice, um, I've been more into the uh, uh, practicing lately than I am the, the speculating, but the speculating stuff is interesting too. Um, I was reading this book, it's called Glimpses of a Golden Childhood, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an Osho book and i was reading it right before I, I popped on here and there was this one section that i want to read because it it popped out as something that just kind of encompasses what i have been thinking and feeling about religion generally and i mean probably especially the for the future of religion so it's just a short little section this whole book is osho telling stories about his his childhood um So he's having this conversation with his grandmother, Um, and he says, Christians, Jews, Muslims, everybody's lying. They all talk of God, heaven and hell, angels and all kinds of nonsense without knowing anything at all. My grandmother was great, not because she knew, but because she was unable to lie to a child. Nobody should lie to a child. To a child is unforgivable. Children have been exploited for centuries just because they're willing to trust you can lie to them very easily and they will trust you. If you're a father, a mother, they will think you are bound to be true. That's how the whole of humanity lives in corruption, in a thick mud, very slippery, a thick mud of lies told to children for centuries. If we can, just, if we can do just one thing, a simple thing, not lie to children and to confess to them our ignorance, then we will be religious and we will put them on the path of religion. Children are only innocents, leave them not your so-called knowledge, but you yourself must first be innocent unlying true even if it shatters your ego and it will shatter it is bound to shatter yeah not lying that's a good place to start
1: definitely all right thank you colin aaron what's your relationship with religion
4: (laughs) hi everyone good to be here uh my name is aaron rogerson i am a podcaster and YouTuber, I was raised Christian, but I stopped going when I was 14, which was about when I was able to make my own decisions. So it never really was something that ever connected with me. Um, And I guess my introduction would be to kind of try and define our terms a little bit because I see the word religion as being a little bit problematic because I think we're talking about a lot of things when we use the word religion. And uh, the way I would divide it up is that there is a the image or aesthetic of religion sort of dressing religious or kind of being drawn to the religious, uh, image, the experience, maybe the idea of being enlightened or insight porn. I think that B would be, um, phenomenological self-inquiry or spirituality or a kind of form of individuation, which we often associate with religion, sort of like the self-work or, uh, disassembling and reassembling one's experience or self in some way, and then see which I would call a moral hierarchy, um, where people tend to sort of arrange themselves around a common idea or meme or symbol. And that sort of, uh, that structured morality kind of is this system in which people ground their actions. And so I see these as being different things that are obviously interwoven, they overlap quite a bit, but they are different phenomena that we still use religion to describe all of them. And so kind of sifting through those and kind of separating them a little bit and kind of figuring out which is which could help us make sense of this conversation. Um, And the first two, which is sort of the idea of religion and spirituality, I think are rising in prominence. Um, for a lot of reasons. And I think the third one, the moral hierarchy around which people sort of align themselves um, is something that I think has increasingly become a little bit atomized and is sort of separating fracturing into different groups. And I, I'm under the opinion that pattern is going to continue the atomization, but I don't know. And I'm open to the mystery
3: of it.
1: Great. Thank you for... Starting the conversation about definitions, we'll get more into that a little bit later. And last but not least, Kadal. All
5: right, um, I can go off a little bit of what Colin said, actually, because my my nanny, my grandmother, <clears throat> um, just passed away yesterday, and um, I remember actually she was extremely metaphysical. We would always have conversations about religion, and she was a Mormon um and i remember as a child um she would tell me that i had come from the one and i would return to the one um and that she would prove me wrong uh when i died that she would be there waiting for me in heaven and and so forth and 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 as i developed i was always pretty much an spontaneous atheist or at least critical of religion and i Uh, gravitated towards evolutionism and naturalism, not really knowing actually that the ideology of evolutionism and naturalism was in fact a sort of effect or a symptom of postmodernism, because in essence, they were just deconstructing religion and um, also forwarding a religion of rationality um, to critique and deconstruct religion. Um, and the more I developed as a person, and the more I developed as a as a thinker, um, basically I came, you know, to understand, you know, the great thinkers like Kant and Nietzsche, who understood that pure rationality was founded on an underlying irrationality, um, and that um, what the pure rationalist Enlightenment thinkers miss is their own embodied sexual existence, specifically sexual existence, um, not to repress anything. And that led me to sort of thinking that in order to make progress, instead of thinking the deconstruction of religion, we need to think the evolution of religion. And I think that's the synthesis between the evolutionary worldview and the religious worldview. And In order to think the evolution of religion, I think we need to return to the undeniable classics of the modern canon, like Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud, who are the sort of litmus test of the gateway you must pass through to have faith today, I think. You know, with with Marx, you have to make sure that your religion is not an ideological trap. With Nietzsche, you have to make sure your religion is not founded in resentment. And with Freud, you have to make sure your religion is not founded in infantile unconscious fantasies. And these are the tests to me that religion must pass in order to be credible. Um, So it's not to throw away the greatest thinkers of modernity, but to use the greatest thinkers of modernity to build a religion which makes sense for the 21st century. And if you're looking, in my view, for the current ground of the battle where new religions will form, it's at the site of sexual difference and gender wars. Because I think it's something we cannot change. And it's the location of the greatest pain, joy, and so forth, and the foundation of real community. So I'll I'll end there.
1: Thank you, and, and rest
5: in peace to my Nan. And I hope she's right, but probably she's not. And uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see.
1: Yes, rest in peace to your Nan. And thanks for being here today, too. Um, and then Bruce, who is the actual final introduction.
6: <laughs> Hi, yes, thank you for having me here also. And I'm also here because I was invited. I think I was invited because earlier this year on I have a YouTube channel, and we had a series called uh, The Future Faces of Spirit, and it was basically about 30 different videos uh, of people reflecting on the future of religion. And I often write in this area, and uh, our channel focuses on post-metaphysical, integrative, metamodern uh, expressions of what we feel is the, the coming religious spirit in our time, uh, not only focusing on those things, but those are recurrent themes. I was raised a Christian, but in a loose way, my mother always had pantheistic leanings, and my father was big into cosmology and NASA, and, um, you know, they didn't really give me any kind of reductive or dogmatic introduction to Christianity. In my teens, I had a crisis, the loss of many friends at once, and uh, all dying at once. And it threw me into crisis. And I was able to have a retreat up in the mountains uh, to try to recollect myself after, after all of that. And I ended up having a mystical experience and tried for a couple of years to embrace a mystical Christianity. I found the teachings were very sparse and uh, no one really understood what I was talking about when I went to priests. Um, I tried to become a monk for a little while, and thankfully I, I let that go. But there is that, that, that spirit still in me in, in some degree. Um, I moved on to other paths, uh, especially exploring Advaita Vedanta, um, the teachings of Krishnamurti. I went and lived as a creative writing teacher at one of his schools in India for a year and uh, did a lot of inquiry and work over there. Probably my main focus over multiple years has been in Tibetan Buddhism, particularly uh, Mother Tantra um, and Dzogchen. I've also done a lot of Vipassana. Um, Right now, I would, you know, consider myself more nomadic. I don't center in any particular tradition, but I've valued what I've gotten from all of those. And I'm quite interested in kind of bringing forward, you know, the insights from deep immersion in those contemplative traditions i i lived for a year at a vipassana ashram in the island of java um, i lived for a year with uh, Tibetan teachers in nepal and then for three years with a Lama studying different forms of sleep and dream yoga and tantra and, and zokchen. you know um, so i've done a lot of deep diving in those areas and i recognize that they actually, in these pre-modern structures and forms, they nevertheless contain a lot of really deep insight into human capacity and potential. Um, I don't think we can follow it. I don't think we should follow it, but for me, uh, the Tibetan bun tradition is very instructive for the way that it is able to integrate into a single coherent path shamanic elements and early alchemical elements, um, rational elements, uh, mindfulness elements, a deep deconstructive uh, critical philosophy, and then um, high level body work and awareness training. Um, So it really has a, a broad scope that consciously integrates, you could say, multiple expressions of our human intelligence over, you know, the course of our history. And I don't see, you know, I, I wouldn't be a promoter of everybody needs to become a Buddhist. I'm, I, I don't orient that way anymore, but the capacity to integrate all of that human intelligence within a coherent practice, um, I think is something that we could learn from. So I'll stop with that. I, I guess a, one thing I, I'll also say is I teach at a university and, uh, privileged, you know, from my own perspective, to be able to talk about some of these things. And um, I have a degree in transpersonal psychology. And uh, maybe later in the discussion, I think there's a useful frame from Michael Washburn, who is uh, kind of a philosophical psychologist who integrates Jung um, with Freud and object relations theory as well as existential um, philosophy and therapy, as well as um, some transpersonal and spiritual. So he has a frame called Regression in the Service of Transcendence that uh, I think is worth looking at and exploring in the context of what's happening with QAnon and and recent events. So I'll maybe like to get into that a little bit later. But thank you for having me here. look forward to the conversation.
1: Great, thank you. All right, and that's, uh, those are our panelists for today. Super excited to hear what ends up emerging out of this uh, conversation, this dialogue. I think Aaron was right to kind of begin to discuss the different definitions that we're using to talk about religion. I think that we can talk about religion structurally. Uh, what are the aspects of religion? Religion is a kind of, um, I almost think of it as a super turn where it actually encompasses multiple things uh, multiple aspects, and, and and what Bruce was just speaking about, and I think this Bruce clarified to me was this Varayana Buddhism, or what what form of Buddhism were you just talking about, Buddhism more generally?
6: Oh, in in that case, it was the Tibetan, uh, oh, Tibetan. Bonpo tradition, okay, and uh, it includes multiple forms, with the peak of that system being Zogchen, which is the kind of the vehicle I learned it through.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. So we have these old, old religions, these old traditions that have actually managed to over time create this uh, structure that touches on all of these different aspects of human existence from the individual to the collective. And I would consider that to be kind of the proper representation of religion as we see it uh, accumulate knowledge over time and Religion doesn't, not every religion has all of those structural components. Some religions are more emphasized within the context of an institution. Some religions are more independent and spiritual. And I think the religions or the speculative religions or the proto religions that we're seeing today don't have all of those components to them. And so it's tricky to begin to talk of them as if they already are proper religion. Uh, really, instead, we're looking, I think Alexander pointed this out quite beautifully, as a primordial soup of kind of religious impulses that are beginning to knock around in our mimetic space and in our behavioral space. And as those behaviors kind of begin to move in through time, we would expect to see some more of these properties emerge um, as they're filtered by reality. So I would like to start by getting everybody's um, sense of how, how do you all kind of parse the differences between these long-standing traditions, uh, these, these religions that have so much depth and human inquiry embedded in them, and compare them to the structures that we have today, uh, and also how do we treat things within the secular world, for example. Do we consider the religion of governance? Is, is, that, is that something that we say metaphorically as religious? Or are we actually making the claim that it is as if it is a religious structure? So I'm gonna toss that over. If anybody, I think at this point, if you wanna just unmute yourself to answer the question, that's perfectly fine, Um, but I can also call on people. So does anybody wanna jump in on that one? How do we think about religion uh, as a definition when we look at these scenarios?
6: I can say something, yeah. um, there are multiple ways to hold it. I think what's fruitful uh, for me, the way I, I approach it is to try to disentangle religion from its particular expression at a certain, you know, within a particular culture or at a certain stage of development. I think some people look at religion as meaning organization around uh, a series of unquestionable beliefs. And to me, that would just be one expression, uh, kind of developmentally situated expression of religion. And if you explore world religious traditions, not all of them orient in that way. That's kind of a Judeo-Christian framing and and bias on on how we look at religion. I think you can look at spirituality in part as an exercise in self-integration and self-development. Um, where you are exploring and cultivating different human capacities and fostering deeper relationship to others into the world, and there are different, you know, contemplative and prayer-based and communal ways to do that. And I think religion, in a sense, can be looked at looked at as the structure that supports that kind of inquiry, um, in, in a way that can foster community, can create a generative enclosure for that kind of work to go on. Um, and so I'd like to look at religion, not strictly as like a belief based thing, or even necessarily as something focused only on contemplation. Um, but really something that vitalizes, uh, human energies and, and, and helps to foster their integration and the deepening of insight and wisdom. Um, the, the, I think the, the deepening of, of a sense of justice and care and, uh, you know, um, community activism. Um, For me, I'm inspired in part by uh, the work of the philosopher of religion, Raimon Panikkar, and in terms of secularism, he looks at secularity as a development of human religiousness in the sense that it is a deep valuation or revaluation of time, the temporal becoming, and the world, where many religions prior to the emergence of secularism tended to focus on the otherworldly and the eternal and to kind of uh, devalue um, the world to some extent, that the religious aim was to get away from it. And he says that the movement of secularism and atheism is basically a shedding of earlier forms of thinking and orientation that in our complex cosmopolitan time no longer served us and that we actually need a this world and a temporal becoming focus to actually deepen our own wisdom, um, be more wisely and productively together. um, And that there is a sacredness in the valuation of becoming and the world um, that does not have to be reductive. But um, so I, I, I appreciate that perspective And uh, I think that could be a ground to, to build on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Alexander.
2: Yeah. I'd love to pick up off that. Um, Yeah. I I think there's, I mean, like Bruce said, right at the beginning, there's a lot of different angles we can take towards this. Um, A couple of things that come up for me are the difference between religious practice and institutional religion. Um, I think, spiritual not religious is or certainly was the fastest growing um, religion or spiritual identifier in the US um, and, and may still be, you know, it's just this, this idea of people recognizing they have a spiritual impulse, but not wanting because of the many harms that they've caused to be associated with an institutional religion. I I think that I understand and also yeah, i also feel some of that myself. But at the same time, we as a culture rely on institutions in order to outsource our trust. Um, and it's, it's worth checking out the work of uh, Joseph Henrik at Harvard who's looked at weird psychology in depth. So West WEIRD stands for Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich and Democratic. And part of the way we developed, probably most of the people on this call, myself included, Um, culturally and what is deeply, deeply embedded in our cultural psychology to a degree that none of us can really completely free ourselves from is that because we are in large groups and we can't just have a a trust network, which is like me, my uncle, my my cousins, my aunt, etc. We have to outsource our trust to institutions, um, And we also have voluntary association, which means that we can choose to join different groups, different religions, different guilds, different bowling clubs, whatever it is. And so the idea of us being able to successfully nail religion without some institutionalized form of it, I think can be seen pretty well looking at the success or lack of success of a lot of the communes in the uh, 60s, 70s and kind of 80s. The, the absolute failure when we try and completely free ourselves from kind of an institutionalized system. So that is a tension, I think, that's unresolved. And what we're seeing right now, of these kind of decentralized, simulated religions, I call them. They're not real religions, because this is something from Gnostic theology and also from, amazingly, actually, repeats through a lot of religious traditions, the idea that the ego mimics the essential values of of a kind of deeper reality because the ego can't really um yeah be- because it can't really truly tap into the kind of the, the ground of being let's call it it creates these simulations of reality and so we see these simulations of religion and wokeism and QAnon, and on and they're sort of internet phenomena as well so they're kind of self-replicating and they they end up looking like religion but they don't have a core to them. They don't have a transformative core. There's no, like in in QAnon or Wokeism, there's no sense that you can transcend. You just get stuck either deeper in the conspiracy web or deeper in this kind of um, fetishistic shame spiral. And there's no real regenerative core to them. So I think we're in this place right now, culturally, where our institutions are screwed. And it's rare that someone is feeling like the catholic church for example is going to be the place that's going to be a deep transformative regenerative spiritual experience for them so we're looking elsewhere and yet there is no elsewhere and so that urge is 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 moving in many many different directions um so yeah yeah i think I'll, i'll pause there great
4: i'll pick up on that um there is, again, it, it's, it's a little convoluted how to sort of sift through these different ideas, but uh, I do think of religion as being something that is uh, very human. I think it's really inherent to the way that we orient ourselves towards the world. And I do think that religion is something that we see as a pattern in both virtuous ways and in really pernicious ways. Um, and to me, the way we use religion, how we've used it in the past, I think mostly refers to this moral hierarchy that I brought up before and that there is a tendency for people to want to come together in sort of a tribal way and gravitate towards some sort of shared idea or some, or some shared meme. And that sort of uh, that circular kind of arranging around some pattern of living or some goal or some idea that can be abstracted upward into this higher principle of, of a moral framing that sort of trickles down to kind of like the way of life that they share. And I think that higher principle as what we think of as being God. And so I think that the patterns we see in society is very much the religious patterns because they are people who are kind of assorting themselves in different groups that are centered around some sort of meme or some sort of idea or some sort of mission. And that mission often involves kind of like the army of darkness versus the army of light because it's moral, there's a good and a bad. That's a very strong presence in the sort of way of orienting oneself towards the world. Um, of moving towards the army of light in order to fight back the army of darkness. And I think that we see those patterns manifesting right now. And I would say that those are religious patterns. Um, and that's not really the same view as sort of kind of like the uh, spiritual, sort of utopian ideas of self improvement and self transcendence and getting in touch with the divine as much as it's kind of a tribal mechanism that I think is ingrained in us in a very evolutionary way. And that's the way that I tend to think about religion. It can be applied to a lot of the um, systems of development of people in all these different realms of, of life.
1: Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to riff on this concept um, of, of the breach that Alexander brought up. Um, and we're kind of beginning to talk about that in terms of this idea of the religious impulse. And I think Aaron, began to get into this with this idea of the division between good and evil or these tribal relationships with the in group and the out group and that beginning to ricochet in our society as people are tribalizing online for example and seeing themselves within these like mythic um, battles essentially um, between good and evil between you know the pedophiles and the you know the freedom fighters of, of QAnon, and the idea here of Emotions and the the pathic element of human existence breaching into this rational uh, procedural uh, world of secularism where authority is held together through uh, very like thought out (laughs) rational decisions that have been made through the legal structure and how these things are now obviously with the incident at the Capitol. We have the perfect kind of uh, mythopoetic or symbolic scenario where the, ha- where the seat of government of the United States that represents this rational utilitarian way of decision-making of the culture of secularism of the authority of institutions has been literally <laughs> breached uh, by this, this mob motivated by this, I think mostly uh, fight between good and evil. So does anybody want to, I mean, Cadell sp- spoke on this, Alexander, if you want to talk a little bit more about the breach, that would be wonderful.
3: I'll say, I'll say something about that. Um, I think the, uh, even hearing Aaron describe the, I forget the way you put it, like the army of darkness and the army of light, like it, it's like it. it it grabs at something inside of us. And like, we, we want to be a part of that. We want, And, and I think part of it is, is identifying with something that's larger than yourself. And I also think that um, it can be a numbing agent to actually figure out what's, what's happening internally and not questioning the tyranny of, of your own habits and the tyranny of your own opinions because you align yourself with the good. And so you're on the good team and then you can suddenly shut off your mind you can shut off any sense of self-inquiry because you found your place within the tribe. And that's, it's a, it's herd animal behavior. Um, And one, one, one thing I'll say about this chaotic time too is historically there's never been a better time to pursue authentic spirit, spiritual practice, like because chaos, the chaos of the world, that it's sort of the, because society's in such turmoil, it kind of loosens the grip of, uh, of sort of oppressing individuals and in the internet age there's so much information that you can actually go out and find your own path and the failure mode of that i think is is becoming too caught up in a tribal identity and not thinking for yourself
1: Alexander, you want to jump in
2: yeah yeah i mean i think that's a really nice point uh I think this is the main, or for me, what I perceive as like a, the main thing going on, basically. Um, I just—I was just looking up to make sure I had the quote right, but there's a um, there's a book by um, his name's Ian Morris called Why the West Rules for Now, which is um, kind of a bit like guns, germs, and steel, sort of like tracking kind of what it was about Western culture that made them slightly more dominant in the East for a while. But he has this kind of refrain in the book that, is that history can be explained by um, frightened lazy people trying to find quicker safer ways of doing things and I remember reading it in the book and being like really resisting it being like no 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 we're much more than that and of course we are but also we're not and so I think to that to that point um that Colin just made now it's like uh yeah it is much easier to have a worldview where you are you solve the meaning crisis because you finally have meaning and purpose you are um, fighting darkness um, and you have a sense of spiritual cohesion and you have something to do you have something to focus your all of that kind of psychic energy on and so there is one element to to this um this kind of element of breaching which is simply this like urge that this deep religious urge people have which is then being met in different ways in the imaginal realm of the internet. And pretty much anything will do. That's what I find fascinating about it. Like, no matter how shoddy the worldview or how shoddy the ideology or how untrue it is blatantly, it will do. And that's, I think, a testament to the religious urge. And so it's, it's, you know, I often wonder what could we do to... Uh, mitigate that in some sense and have a healthy outlet for our religious impulses, impulses. And the only thing I can think of is a, some kind of worldwide nature religion that doesn't have any one of the head, sort, sort of like a neo-paganism based around nature worship. Um, but I have no idea how that would come about. And um, currently it's pretty uncool, that kind of neo-paganism space. So it would need like a
5: pretty hefty rebrand if that were gonna work, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think I think Ralph Waldo Emerson tried that. Oh yeah. <laughs> not 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 sure how much I'm not sure if it it, it caught on outside of obscure English poetry circles but
1: <laughs> Does it pass your test? Does it pass Freud and Nietzsche and uh <laughs> Well yeah, I can
5: I I can I can talk about that a little bit in relationship to you know this you're saying this fight between good and evil and 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 what working towards what what might be a also, sort of engaging a little bit on what might be a good definition of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I like a lot of what what has been said so far. The the quote, <clears throat> but when we're thinking about religion and religion today, I, I think we should we shouldn't underestimate the degree to which we're, we are already religious without knowing we are religious. So to de- to demonstrate what I mean by that point, I, I want to give a quote by Hegel, who said, "The mysteries of the ancient Egyptians." were mysteries for the ancient Egyptians themselves. Meaning the ancient Egyptians didn't know what they were actually up to when they were doing what they were doing. And just like we don't know what they were doing, they didn't know what they were doing either. And I think that that sentiment applies perfectly to the way Marx thought about capital. Because capital is our religion. Like When Marx talked about the way we relate to commodities, we relate to them in a certain way with a sacred religious quality to it. So, like, I like the notion that Giorgio Agamben said, which is God didn't die, God was turned into money. And it's a type of universal virtuality. Like, capital is already universal, it already doesn't care about any of your cultures. It just goes everywhere and overtakes everything. Um, And it is in a way already our, you know, the way in which we mark our value, the way in which we organize our societies and so forth, not saying that we should continue doing it that way, but just that we do do it that way. And in that sense, what interests me is the possible transition from capitalism to the sharing economy as the site of religiosity. Because in order to actually go from capitalism to the sharing economy, we as subjects are going to have to change fundamentally. The sharing economy is only limited, not by our technology, but by how we are as subjects, how we, you know, the difference in order to think about this, think about the difference between going to a hotel and going on couch surfing. The difference in subjectivity is really what's at stake here in the difference between these two modes of production basically. And then to connect that litmus test of Marx to the litmus test of Nietzsche and Freud, for Nietzsche, he thought good and evil were basic. And this is, I think, a crucial point about good and evil for Nietzsche is good and evil are the same thing, that evil is just a more direct expression of good. You know, like like Osho, I just watched a, a lecture by Osho today where he said he was impressed with the intensity and the authenticity of people's hate but he was not impressed by the authenticity and the intensity of people's love. In order to find out your love, you have to be deeply with how you authentically hate. And in order to be authentically good, you have to understand your evil deeply. Otherwise it's just shallow. So that would be basically be the emergence of the overman. And the, the emergence of the overman is basically the, the way to overcome the victim and mob mentality that we see in these proto-religions. Now the proto-pagan, we shouldn't go back to paganism. The proto-pagan religions are fostering this victim mob mentality in the gender wars and so forth. And I think only the overman can overcome that by seeing that we're all basically victims of reality. So we have to engage in a type of universal struggle and see the, the commonality of the struggle as opposed to looking for someone to blame for that, if that makes sense. And then finally, before I stop, I, I really think I finished a lecture last week on, on, on Freud's view on religion. And, and the, the central idea he communicates is his theory is that what becomes religion is a condensed fixation in the social sphere from private neurotic ceremony. So in other words, you have your own little private ceremony that you use to keep away anxiety. And then that over time builds up cumulatively into a social identification. And I think that that is, is, is an interesting way on a personal level to think about what you actually are finding sacred.
0: Hmm. Awesome, Cadell. Um, I think we can move on to our first uh, question uh, from our crowd. Isaiah, can you please unmute yourself and ask your question?
7: Thank you, Albert.
8: <laughs> um, uh, yeah, thanks for this conversation, guys. There's a lot of stuff to to really mull over. Um, let me just find the wording. All right, so I want. I'm curious: um, Are religion and democracy necessarily dichotomous, or is there a way these to be reconciled without the mimetic warfare of our current age.
1: I can just riff on that for a second here while we wait, though. If, um...
8: Yeah, well, I, oh, I wasn't. Right. I just wasn't. I thought that no one could answer the question. I didn't know that no one could unmute. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, p- part of, part of my question was drawn by um, by Alex's comment on like a neo, like a global neo-paganism, and Cadell's earlier mention of how a, a, a new religion might emerge out of like the um, the reality of sexual difference. So those were the two things. But I mean, if whoever wants to, like, I just want to hear the thoughts. Thanks.
5: Well, the debate. The I don't. I don't. To be honest, it's it's such, it's a really difficult question. If the basic question is, are religion and democracy dichotomous? I, I I I mean, the 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 thing I the thing I observe is that right now capitalism and democracy are undergoing a separation. It doesn't seem like democracy and capitalism can coexist whereas in the 20th century democracy and capitalism could coexist and if i'm saying that capitalism is implicitly functioning as a type of religion being a virtual universal medium mediating all of our social interaction then it's to me religion is connected with a type of anti-democratic structure in some in some way because it's like truth is not a democracy like it doesn't matter how many people believe in something, it doesn't, that doesn't make it true. So I I mean, my spontaneous inclination is to say that religion and democracy don't go together.
1: Yeah, I think one of the struggles with democracy as well is that it, it, at least in secular society, is it's led to a kind of pluralism and moral relativism because we have all of these different communities of people that have different outlooks on how people should live. And we all kind of end up in a situation where we say, well, this person can, you know, decide for themselves what they believe and how they want to live their lives, which basically is a kind of atomization process. And we then are sometimes I think what we're seeing now is a crisis when we're trying to to frame the events of our of our shared reality, we can look at the same facts and have different ways of viewing them and different ways of interpreting them. And that's the meaningful layer that we're living in today. And of course, that actually, because we've fetishized almost our political beliefs as it relates to the, to the religion of democracy, let's say, uh, we end up with more political division. We end up with it, with partisanship. We end up with this, this actual like projection of the good versus evil narrative onto political parties which is extremely dangerous, (laughs) because these are real people. (laughs) And uh, when 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 we kind of take a step back and we attempt to look at what people are actually motivated by, there is some resentment. There's obviously, in some of these groups, there's resentment, there's vengeance, there's the desire to be punitive, to punish. But there are also people who are motivated by a sense of injustice, a sense of wanting to right wrongs in the world wanting to expose bad actors. And so there's both the sense of being motivated to do something um, as well as this feeling of, of vengefulness in, in resulting from this feeling of, of being disempowered. So these, these dynamics within democracy uh, as it relates to kind of religious or uh, I mean, and I think religious in the sense of devotion, right? It's not like it's a full religion. It's, it's not like there's a spiritual path like really laid out in in a very strong way, like there is with with, with tantra or some of these other practices um, within wokeism or something like that. But um, yeah, so I guess that's what I would say is that democracy as its as its own kind of religious framework. It, you can see how these dynamics end up showing themselves within the, the democratic process. And they, it, I mean, at least in America, it's like looking like more division is, is on the horizon for us.
2: Yeah. Just to, to pick up off that. I, yeah. I agree with a lot of that. And the question that came up for me was like, uh, what, what religion and what democracy, which I don't say just to be clever, like to disentangling the terms, but just in terms of, I think an interesting place to start is what, are you willing to die for and that contains within it the deepest religious impulse so it may well be and may well have been at some point that many people were willing to die for their country um speaking as a european that time has sort of passed here largely i think there are people in the states who who feel that probably more there's people here obviously who feel that as well but it's very it's very different now um but that for me contains the deepest religious impulse, what people are willing to die for. And so if there is a tension point between, unless you have like a theocracy where it's all kind of blended together in some horrific situation, you have this tension between whether someone's willing to die for their religion or whether they're willing to die for the the group identity encapsulated by uh, their nation. And I think increasingly, people aren't willing to die for either um, but you've got to be willing to die for something, I think otherwise what are you doing? So um, I think the tension can exist there, but I think it really depends on on yeah, yeah what democracy and what religion
5: well I I wanna I want just very quickly respond to uh, to Alexander's point there because uh, I I'm I'm a huge um I would I would recommend highly uh, Rick Roderick's philosophy lectures on online and one of the things Rick Roderick said is that the only true democracy is death because it does everyone's going to die so so I think that's very interesting Alexander's point and to think what is the relationship here between you're either unconscious or conscious willing to die for something and the religious impulse. I think it's, it's really worth diving into that deeply.
6: We just did a a podcast on Martin Hagelin's book called this life. Um, His previous book was, uh, I think, radical atheism, but in the book, this life, he argues for finitude, a morality and ethics of finitude and points out that if you really look at almost all religious values, higher values, um, they actually are born of our concern and our our acknowledgement of, and and actually the pressure of finitude and limitation and imperfection um, and mortality. And if you actually really believed in a metaphysics of the eternal and the infinite, all of our values would basically flatten and, and be meaningless and that the only place that they assume meaning is in the pressure cooker of limitation and finitude. And so he kind of flips it and shows how an embrace of limitation and finitude and mortality um, can be the grounding place for all of our um, moral and higher uh, developmental impulses and our concerns for, for justice and for compassion and for love. Um, and so I think he presents a really good case. He engages with Charles Taylor and Kierkegaard and, and, and many thinkers through the ages um, and, and Buddhist as well in a, in a very interesting way. What I think is missing from his account is very beautiful, but it's also kind of very Zen. It doesn't really include the whole mythic element that we're seeing surfacing here and how do we also engage with that. Um, but nevertheless, I think it's an important piece that he's contributing.
5: It's a brilliant point.
1: Very brilliant. Love it.
3: I'm surprised no one's asked. There's a there's an authentic spiritual adept in this Zoom room right now. Swami Q.
7: <laughs>
3: <laughs> i just saw that and laugh swami q ananda i love your name you're amazing yeah.
1: <laughs> that's um, the aesthetics uh, yeah. of religion
0: <laughs> uh yeah so uh, um actually i think we can move on to another question uh chris d i thought you asked an interesting question uh would you like to unmute yourself and ask that
8: yeah sure let me get my question um and, and shifting gears from the sort of collective to the individual, my question is mainly for Alex, Bruce, and Aaron, uh, but anyone else is free to answer this. How could religion play a role in tackling trauma and mental illness in ways that the psychedelic and the psychological literature cannot?
2: Yeah, I don't mind starting with that. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. It's a really hard question, actually. <laughs> I'm a little bit stumped because the The thing that comes up for me, firstly, is the idea of coherence, um, uh, which I believe originally came from Viktor Frankl. So, the, the looking at why did some people manage to thrive or at least survive, and then potentially thrive after being in a concentration camp under the kind of most horrific situation imaginable, and other people didn't, was because of some sense of um, coherence. Uh, you know, some some sense that reality was bound together in a meaningful way, rather than just a kind of random assortment of shit happening. And I think coherence plays a huge role as well in in the psychedelic um, uh, experience and in how people integrate it afterwards. It's it's part of your set. Um, It's part of what you're going in with and what you're able to contextualize on the way out. And if you don't have that coherence, it's pretty hard to do anything. Um, and so I think religion is the most effective way to give us that coherence it's kind of you could argue that a part of what it's for is, is to do that um, not in a sort of utilitarian way but it's, it's a side effect I think it's much deeper than that um, and so I think that is kind of what we're missing is coherence right now um, and that's what you can get from religion or or in, indeed from just being in nature and being present in nature you know that's that's again why I, I'm, I'm big on the what is a a nature religion look a new nature religion look like um because it's accessible to everyone and everyone can have a direct experience of it rather than it being mediated through an individual and uh, so as we all know individuals don't do very well when they're in that position of mediating divine um information or mediating metaphysical information they tend to become massive assholes um so yeah
3: oh i would like to add something to that so so i think A lot of, um, I think a lot of mental illness and and just sort of general psychological or psychic pressure today is it creates a a self-referential negative feedback loop. You're basically meditating on your own negative experience. And so any type of religion that pulls you out of that loop and allows you to meditate on something else like a, a deity or the divine or serving others you're creating a new positive feedback loop. So to the extent that, and this is where I think therapy falls short, is because you, you sit in a therapist's office week after week. And I mean, it depends on how skilled they are, but a lot of what therapists are doing is they're asking you about your own internal experience and you're reflecting in that. It's that same self-refer- self-referential loop and you're not actually bringing something else into your own awareness, bringing something else positive or divine or beautiful to focus on. Um, and I think uh, uh, religious traditions that, that have an aesthetic component to them, I think are, are really helpful in that regard.
4: Yeah, I'll pick up on that. I think uh, Alex and Colin both uh, made some really good points. Um, I think If you can interpret religion as a set of tried and true practices that have been developed over a very, very long time, and also as having potentially a built-in community of people, that's always going to be a healthier environment for um, working on yourself and to, uh, to unburden yourself of that kind of shadow material, that traumatic material onto other people who can help you. So you not only have maybe this self-contained set of practices like the the Eightfold Path or something like that, that really have evolved to help people do this, but you have a built-in community. You don't need to go out and build it yourself. Like it's there if you want it. If you want to join a church, the church is there. And that is incredibly helpful to uh, get out of your, as Colin said, that that sort of feedback loop, that self-referential feedback loop. If you are in your own personal vortex, it's incredibly difficult to break out of bad habits. So just having the built-in community can be huge. So I think psychedelics fall short of that. They can be used in, uh, in concert with those things, I think, absolutely. But like psychedelics by themselves can kind of be like a, a sort of bypassing where you kind of feel like I'm, I'm healed and then you sort of suddenly recede back into the vortex. And same with uh, a lot of books you might read on psychology. It's like that's helpful to have that propositional, uh, propositional knowledge to kind of understand maybe what's happening. But it's really the kind of the structure of action, the structure of aligning yourself into a community and a set of practices that really pull you out of your bad habits, I think can be incredibly powerful. And that's available really to anyone who wants it.
6: I think the point about community is a really good one. Um, You know, Krishnamurti used to say that relationship is the best mirror. And uh, we we really need that. Um, And I also uh, appreciated Colin's point too. And one thing that I think, you know, religious mythic forms and entities can form is a kind of self object function to provide a kind of mirroring um, that can be profoundly healing for trauma if it's held in a a healthy way, um, that the kind of, you know, the self object that that image serves as is, is a healthy one. It, it can also not be the case. <laughs> but I think there's that dynamic potential there. And I wanted just to say quickly something um, in relationship both to this question of trauma and in relationship to Alexander's notion of um, the breach. Mm-hmm. I mentioned um, the idea of regression and the service of transcendence. And I want I'll just say what it is in Washburn's framing. Um, at the personal level, but I think for me, I feel resonances for what's happening collectively. So in regression in the service of transcendence, typically what happens is there's a rupture in our belief in and trust in social roles, structures, forms that have been part of our sustaining sense of self and identity and, and project in the world. So the things that we used to be able to rely on that gave us meaning and orientation, um, whether they were goals or roles or structures or institutions, we, we no longer can embrace them. And we begin to feel alienated um, in that context. And actually there's like a sense of as alienation progresses, there's a sense of unreality that enters. What we took seriously before now seems kind of flat and cartoonish and we can't It doesn't impact us the same way and uh, there's anxiety that arises in this context right and as these things progress um, because our self was anchored in those forms now that those forms are not reliable our own sense of self begins to become um, weakened and and there are cracks (laughs) that enter and in Washburn's framing this is where the dynamic ground, the, the the unconscious begins to emerge, and anxiety progresses into dread. Um, unrealness progresses into surreality or the uncanny, and um, alienation progresses into estrangement. And as the unconscious material surfaces, there's more of a sense of the ominous, of dark forces, of early repressed material returning charging us with um, earlier forms earlier imaginal forms that were uh, you know repressed early on in our lives so I won't go through the whole thing but you can see that yeah I think as our own you know culture has lost its faith in a lot of its institutions and meaning making systems there could be this collective loss of identity and rupture and and Allowing for the surfacing of unconscious materials, and in Washburn's framing, it becomes regression—not just regression, but regression in the service of transcendence—to the degree that we can rec- recognize this larger process um, and and begin to participate with it in some way, not to just medicate it or stop it or shut it down with social, political measures or or you know new security state stuff, but to really see. The, the process for what's happening um, and to recognize that there's some truth in the rupture that happened and there's some truth that's emerging. Um, but how do we hold it? How do we move with it? How do we integrate it? That's the, the real question.
0: Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, Bruce. Wow. look got all that insight. Um, I believe, uh, yeah, I mean, we're almost out of time, but I mean, maybe we could close this out with this question. Uh, Christian, can you please unmute yourself and ask our panelists your question?
7: Yeah, sure. After um, reading back my question, I decided it was not a very good question. Um, and I kind of reformulated it, so I'll, I'll kind of reframe it a bit. And I liked what Alex Ander was pointing to with um, the question of what are we willing to die for? I think that's like a really helpful way to get in touch with your deepest values and virtues. But it's not necessarily a very easy question. Um, to, to really sit with it, um, to, to have a felt sense of the reality of death. Um, and this is probably why, for many people, near-death experiences or psychedelic experiences kind of put people in touch with their values, because it, it kind of brings you to that place, whether you like it or not. And so the question for me is... Um, falling short of being able to like pour acid in the drinking water or whatever um some type of forced psychedelic or near-death experience how can we help people get in touch with their deepest values and virtues and one way this question has come up for me recently is the the concept of rites of passage um and that's an interesting topic for me right now i feel like it was more popular when You know, the counterculture was on a more neo-pagan, anthropologically informed tip, but the conversations didn't really evolve, I think, very fruitfully. But in the sense-making space and these kinds of conversations I've been hanging out in today, I haven't heard that brought up very much. And it seems like it might form a really integral piece of the future of religion, is what rituals um, are provided um, publicly or, you know, at a high level of access to people um, which can get people in touch with themselves in a deep way such that a, um, a more beautiful religion or whatever can start to evolve. And I, I feel like t- generally the, the, the conversation is framed in terms of like therapeutic interventions or early childhood reform, but maybe something about ritual or rites of passage and how that is a meaningful part of religion. Or can be could
2: be yeah i would love to, to pick up on that i think that's a fantastic question christian and i think um yeah i think you're spot on with the the idea of ritual or experience rather than telling people like you are going to die and you have to reckon with that and that's core it's like yeah okay great the ego is naturally going to um bypass that because that's what the ego is so it's you know it's 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 useful I think like but one thing that comes up for me I mean you know Eckhart Tolle talks about uh, you know practicing meditation is really practicing how to die before you die, um, and Peter Kingsley who is a brilliant scholar who I recommend very highly has uh, written quite a few great books. Um, uh, he talks about this practice of incubation that he argues that the Pythagoreans used and was a very deep practice um, where you effectively go, which it kind of got taken up by Sufism um, afterwards, but you go into a cave and you just die. Well, you don't really die, just lie there and just completely stop. And it was often the place that people went when they had no other recourse. It was like they were at, their, they were at rock bottom. And you would go. Someone would, I, presumably, I guess, someone would bring you food and water, and you would just die before you die. You would simulate death. And I think it has to be some kind of psychedelics can do that. Actually, if in the right setting, they don't just do it automatically, but in the right setting with the right ritual intent, they can they can do that. I have friends who do a ritual where they uh, wrap you in cellophane and give you loads of ketamine, and then cut the cellophane open and you have a <laughs> rebirth experience which uh as soon as covid's over i'm well up for that but um you know the the, <laughs> the point is it's a lived experience and like the eleusinian mysteries arguably were that process as well where you you there was the myth of persephone and demeter and you you would do you would actually live the myth of going into the underworld and coming back out You know, that's a very ancient idea and you have to, it's participatory though. You live it, you play the myth, you can't just talk about it. And so, yeah, I think some kind of initiation rituals, um, maybe for teenagers, maybe at the age of 17, you know, embedded into culture could be a really powerful thing.
1: Yeah, I would just say just to respond to this question, which has two parts, right? There's like almost a scaling question here of like, How do we bring this to more people? Like the, you know, the reference of let's just put acid in the water, right? Like, and have the spiritual awakening. I think we have to be patient, actually. I think if you have this touch, if you have been touched by death, if you've experienced someone in your life dying, or you've had a near death experience, or you feel drawn to the aesthetics of death and the contemplation of death, that's your call to act on it. And that there's an influence that can arise from, from the, the location that you are adjacent to the world around you. And I think that that, that is where, at least, I begin. Um, the question of scaling this is, I think, a question of time, of temporality, of, of filtration by the world, by reality. And I think that that's actually essential. Religions that have these like complex practices and deep, ways of, of knowing these principles of existence have been worked out through thousands of years of practice. And it's that filtration through reality that gives them that depth of knowledge, that accumulation of knowledge. I think the scaling religions that we're seeing now are what Alexander spoke to as the primordial soup, right? And if we take the Q shaman as an example of a, of a person so emblematic of this like intersection between new ageism, psychedelic culture, psychedelic um, work like this this person and he also speaks um, in some um, some interviews about his own childhood trauma and his own drive to like be on this the forefront of this war of good and evil i think doing psychedelics is not only a, a positive it's like it can actually cause you know you to dissociate from reality to, especially if you have the psychedelic mindset with the QAnon explanation of reality, and you're walking around the world, and you're seeing all these symbol, symbols and signals, and I think it actually can cause greater disconnection from the world. If and so, thinking about operating at scale um, with these very powerful tools without without any kind of this take brings you to the next point: the initiation practices, right? So. With ritual and initiation, the way I've been thinking about this recently um, is that there are periods of time and transition where you are going to face some amount of chaos. And of course, adolescence is is like really one of the first truly chaotic identity ripping um, experiences that a human being goes through, besides birth. (laughs) Right, you have birth, and we don't have a lot of rituals around birth, and that's something I've been thinking about a lot. But then we also have uh, adolescents and I think teenagers are actually reaching for tools within their environment uh, to initiate themselves into adulthood, Um, having sex much younger or, um, you know, reaching for piercings and tattoos or uh, we have people who are changing their gender identities now uh, to initiate themselves into new groups. So I think that societies in the past have actually figured out that if they have these structures already existent. They can actually help these young people move through this process and actually come out the other side with the cultural tools to assimilate into the group. And I think that that's important because that moment actually can be a moment where people become traumatized. And this goes back to the idea of the authority uh, figure who is corrupted. So these moments of transition, uh, these High like birth, sex, you know, uh, adolescence, marriage, death. There are also all of these places where you can end up traumatized if you give over yourself to someone who is not a legitimate authority. Same thing with the psychedelic experience. So, all of that I think requires us to think carefully and think about responsibility and to think, be cautious about scaling because we don't actually know what we're inviting uh, in in that situation, given the significance of all of these things um, and how deep they go, especially when someone's been traumatized, how much work we've just given them uh, to to work through in order to come out as an integrated whole onto the other side.
4: I'll pick up on that. Um, Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's also a very, very difficult question because in some ways we're talking about um, a kind of coming of age process or a rite of passage as you're saying that is not something that's going to be fun or feel good and when something is going to help you grow or uh, help you become equipped with the proper tools for uh, navigating the world that's not a good time necessarily and it's not something that you can just thrust on people and like, I think we've gone in the opposite direction of that, where it's like, no, like you don't tell people what to do. You don't thrust things onto them. You don't give them rules. And the idea of that scaling upward, the idea of like giving people a kind of rite of passage or putting them in touch with death in a sense that forces them to confront their own value systems. You can't force people to do that. It just doesn't work. Even someone that you're friends with the idea of like, Hey man, like you need to like get in touch with your own mortality like he'll tell you to fuck off, right? And just like, don't force me to do that. So it's a question of like, how do you hold proper space for people to want to enter into that on their own? Because that's how I, that's how therapy works in the first place. It's like people kind of need to opt in. You don't force people into therapy or it fails. And so the question of this, uh, I, I feel like, I, I don't know what this means, but culturally there needs to be some sort of um, structural changes that hold space for these rites of passages to be available to people to opt into it to say do you want to go out and hunt the wolf by yourself you might die and people just say yes i do want to do that because i want to become a man but the idea of forcing children like go out and hunt the wolf you know it's like how dare you do that to my child like how dare you impose that upon my kid like it's not going to work and that's why what makes it such a tough question is that i don't think these kind of processes of individuation of becoming the person you're meant to be. They're not fun. Um, So people, you can't just force it on people. And that's what makes such a tough question. I could could see like cults or small organized groups uh, creating these structures on their own and like having their children go through these processes on their own. But the idea of it scaling up to like a thing that's imposed by a higher authority, like the government, that seems impossible to me. And it seems like we're going to move in the opposite direction, which is of, uh, relativism, pluralism, and like coddling, which is like, just keep the children safe no matter what. So it's, it's, it's a problematic question, is what I would say. I don't know the answer.
5: I'll, I'll maybe add just that if we were to ask people in the past, like generically speaking, about their deepest values and virtues, it, it would be common sense to them. It's my kids and my family. People would have children and they would dedicate their entire life to make sure their children were safe, secure, and going to grow up for the next generation. That's what they were sacrificing for. That's what they would die for, you know, on their closest intimate level. And, you know, to compare and contrast that to our current culture, you can be in a contemporary gender studies class today and have no information about birth have no information about responsible sex or sacredness of sex. You could have no information about motherhood, no information about what it means to be a father in gender studies courses, in women's studies courses. They they won't talk about, they wouldn't talk about midwifery, for example. These types of things are, have been discarded from the culture because we don't wanna actually socially construct from a real ground. If that makes sense. It's not that we should get rid of social construction, say, but what is the ground upon which we socially construct? So I, th- I think that the question for this on the level of sexual difference would be, are, little, are girls being raised to understand a deep knowledge of birth process that their bodies are capable of? are little our little boys and grow up to be men understanding, the nature of their sexual energy and how it matures and their responsibility with that energy. These things we, our culture has discarded, we don't talk about. So that to me would be the ground upon which we could have that conversation. And also the, the to me the philosophical question would be why did this wheel of reproduction to the next generation, why did that wheel break? And and, and because that's very strange, evolutionarily speaking, to have a species enter into abundance, it is talking about biology in general, to have a species enter into abundance and for that species to stop reproducing is unheard of. It, the exact opposite happens in nature. If you put a species in abundance, they reproduce so much that they undermine their own abundance. But when humans get abundance, we just take ourselves out of the gene pool. And I don't hear any philosophers today asking about that as a mystery. That's to me, that's an evolutionary mystery.
0: Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, So, I mean, perhaps we can move on to the closing statements. Uh, This uh, flew by, but uh, if anyone would like to start and just kind of cap off, I mean, maybe uh, Raven, would you like to start or would you like to pass it on to someone?
1: Well, I've, I really feel like we've only barely touched the surface of this deep, deep pool. Um, and I think something that's gonna be with me, something that Bruce said in the beginning, which is the coming religious spirit. And especially thinking at, at um, a temporal length that goes beyond my own lifetime, for example. So thinking about what's religion going to look like in 150 years, what is that? What is that spiritual face because I don't think it's going to be QAnon. I don't think it's going to be wokeism. I think these are going to be flashes in the pan. I think what we're going to, we're going to see is, and I think maybe the nature religion is pointing at it. These initiation experiences are pointing at it. Um, Cadell's test of Marx and Freud and Nietzsche. Um, I think that this is pointing into the direction of what we may imagine ourselves seeing 150, 200 years from now. As the religion that is coordinating and binding the human beings that are our our children, our grandchildren on the planet. And I think having that long view can help guide us through this period of chaos. You know, after the the you know printing press and Martin Luther, it was like 150 years of of war in Europe, and then out of the ashes rose the Enlightenment. So That's what we should be thinking about is this extended sense of time and to remember our limitations, remember how death actually gives us that context of meaning, that what are we dying for is actually part of the death that we accept, even our natural deaths. And I think that these conversations the beginning of even exploring this, I mean, as secular kind of minded people immersed in the weird world and and the context of pluralism and I think also the religion of capital, just being kind of driven into the so like deeply into our notion of how the world is socially constructed, to try and imagine the religious mindset, to actually get integrated into these practices, to dive into some of the oldest practices and to learn from people who have spent their lives studying those things to get a sense of what it isn't even like to be a religious being is kind of the beginning of this journey of this process of personal initiation of opting in to this transformation and being part of creating or generating the future that we might see or our, you know, our descendants might see in 150, 500 years from now. So I'm really grateful for this conversation. uh, And I'm have all sorts of fire just like in my mind (laughs) and in my heart and yeah if anybody else wants to say any concluding statements and hopefully we can we can continue this dialogue in the future
5: just say if anyone wants to join my uh private dogmatic religion you can just add yourself to my mailing list and you'll get regular doctrines sent to your email at your convenience. And I'll expect complete adherence to everything I say and everything will go fine, I'm sure.
3: I've, I've, I can vouch, I've submitted, I've personally submitted to Cadell and my life is great now, <laughs> really good.
2: I would like to publicly just give my bank details to you, Cadell, now. <laughs> <laughs> right,
5: I accept all sorts, visa master. <laughs> right, <really. laughs> Thank you.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, just- Not cause on your business.
5: life.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really, really like what you said, Raven, um, especially about sort of really just scratching the surface. I feel like we've all, like everyone on this call, we've all like kind of cast our fishing rods into the primordial goo, and it's, it's, there's- yeah, I, I think this is the, the leading edge really of the, the conversation about where the species is going, where our species is going, um, because I think it starts at this kind of religious um, substructure. And yeah, just for, just for me, what's really coming up right now is, is the sense of reality, In the sense of finding like all of this to some degree, um, and a big part of Zen is being able to perceive reality as it is, rather than as we project it, and I think that's what I'm left with is that, that that kind of struggle to do that. And I feel like we're like so far from that culturally right now. But my hope is um, to echo something Bruce was saying as well with um, that. Uh, who was it? I wrote it down. I've been taking notes the whole time. It's was it was amazing. Uh, Washburn. Yeah. The, the Washburn sentiment of, of that, that kind of this eruption we're seeing, this kind of breach is something to be worked with and moved with um, because it contains inside it the seed of, yeah, the seed of uh, hopefully uh, uh, a future more closely aligned to reality. So that's really my hope as well. And I also hope this conversation keeps going because I think there's so much more to say. So, yeah, thanks everyone for being here.
0: Okay. uh, That's everything. I mean, uh, that's, that was a pretty epic. I mean, yeah, I mean like, yeah, that's all I can say. That was amazing. That was, uh, you know, everything I could have wished for and more. Thank you so much for taking part in our panel. Cadell, Bruce, Aaron, Colin, Alex, and Raven, and everyone in the chat for contributing to this really eye-opening conversation. I am going to post the links in this chat. We could keep this conversation going, perhaps in future uh, episodes, but also at the Noetic Nomads Discord. Head in there, chat it up, continue this, the future of humanity, the future of religion, all of this. Uh, keep it up. And uh, again, this recording is going to go up on the Noetic Nomads uh, YouTube channel. You can check it out. And I'll put the links to all our amazing panelists in the description there. So, again, thanks so much, everyone. And that's it for our inaugural panel on the future of religion. Thanks, everyone, for stopping by. And peace out, nomads. And step up, because the world needs you. Okay, bye. Thank
6: you. (laughs) Thanks,
0: everyone.